and I was like, okay, I'm jumping in, you know, um, full on. Um, within a week, um, my hands had stopped sweating profusely, which they'd always done that, you know, at school, I was sweaty boy. And then within about three or four weeks, my wedding ring was falling off. The, my granddad's ring was falling off the signet ring, two rings that I wore the mid afternoon energy dips just started to level out. Um, the brain fog disappeared. I started sleeping through the night. I used to get up three times in the night and pee, um, and, and weight just started falling off. Um, and I, I wasn't particular, you know, I wasn't thinking about weight necessarily as, as the main thing. Uh, I'm sure I, you know, I thought I, I, I do want to lose some. And certainly by the time I'm, you know, hitting another decade, I, I know that I need to have lost some weight. So that was in the back of my mind, but everything else started taking over. I was like, wow, I, I, I feel really different. I guess within about six months, um, I just felt like a completely different human. Welcome back to another episode of Cultivating Change, everyone. I'm your host, Alex Corey, and I'm very excited for today's guest. This is Coach Jake Mahal, based out of the UK, when Jake and I were in school together studying ancestral foundation and concepts. We noticed they were basically a slight variation of the same person. She has a, a passion for food systems and for taking control of his nutrition, as I do, has a pretty awesome permaculture set up in his new location, completely different microclimate than me. Obviously I'm in Western North Carolina. This conversation goes all over the place from our experience with clients, with the transition from more conventional dogmatic sports performance, high carbohydrate, um, and more push mentality, just beating yourself into the ground. Jake and I had a similar experience, uh, as we were transitioning out of our, um, peak youth where the buffer of metabolism basically lets you get away with whatever you want, each finding our own way to more sustainable and longevity-based movement practices, focusing a little more on mobility. Jake recently got certified in MoveNat, so I pick his brain quite a bit about that as it's a fascinating uh, human-based movement art form. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Coach Jake Mahal. I don't think I've ever gotten your actually intro into health and what made you um, do the certification and the interest in the curriculum and actually pursuing impacting others through health in a more professional manner. So could you give us a little brief overview? Well, brief as you want about sure. any, um, any problems you had to solve yourself or how you landed on um, where you are now in your own health journey? Yeah. So I kind of grown up in in this kind of weird milieu of um, having a real unhealthy kind of home environment um, with a a super active backdrop and more health supportive environment at my grandparents' house where I spent a lot of time. So my grandparents, well, my granddad, he was an elite athlete. Um, he was a, a middle distance runner, represented Great Britain. Um, ran with Roger Bannister when uh, Roger Bannister was breaking the four minute miles. So, you know, that's the kind of level we're talking at. Um, and, and he, he continued running until um, just a few years before he died, really very active, um, grew up at home with my dad and my, my basic meals were frozen lasagna from like ready meals. Um, we had an Indian takeaway a couple of times a week to the point where like he would call the Indian takeaway, they'd answer the phone, they'd hear the first couple of syllables and go, ah, Mr. Mahal. Um, and they'd say, yeah, it'll be there in half an hour. Um, and then the other one was broken biscuits and custard. Um, so kind of English style biscuits, uh, cookies. Um, 
and and custard. So um, that was kind of, you know, bad diet growing up, um, juxtaposed with this kind of active lifestyle of my grandparents, more salad, more vegetable, more meat, etc. But um, yeah, just struggle with weight from about the age seven and um and never really lost that despite pursuing um sports science so did a sports science and theology degree at uni very active during high school um and actually um you know really fit so you know doing things like the bleep test and things i'd I'd whip the ass off everyone but still carried a a heck load of weight still had mid-afternoon energy crashes still struggled with brain fog and it's really interesting because during my time at uni, what we were getting taught in lectures and what I was reading in some of the textbooks was so different to what I was reading in journal articles. Um, and at that time, you know, Tim Noakes is starting to to kind of prod around in the journal articles, starting to see his his name come up quite a lot. And he's talking a different narrative to what most people are talking about. Hmm, this stuff's interesting. And scientifically, I think this stuff checks out. Um, as well and so kind of became aware of the ancestral ideas primal ideas uh, Mark Sisson had started blogging by that point so starting to to get a little bit of that um, through the airwaves as well um, internet connectivity wasn't great at university but when I did get a bit of internet I you know saw a bit saw a bit of what Mark Sisson was doing um, but essentially shelved all that to work as a sports scientist um, after graduation um, went with a mainstream approach um, lots and lots of exercise, lots and lots of carbohydrate, um, you know, just the usual. Um, and interestingly, I had a friend who I pointed in the direction of kind of going primal, going paleo, going ancestral, because he was really struggling with his weight in a, you know, you know, the guy was obese. Um, and and he changed his lifestyle inside out. And, um, you know, he just, he got lean, he got cut, he got energetic, um, and he got absolutely ridiculed by our friendship group um, at the time in our early 20s. And despite the results he was getting, he just didn't have a supportive atmosphere around him. Um, but kudos to him. He stuck with it and went, I don't care what you guys think. I'm doing this and this is working for me. Um, and I'm kind of sat there going, oh, I should probably do this too. But I just didn't have, I guess, the balls to kind of go, you know what? I'm going to you know, run the risk of ridicule with my friendship group as well. And it wasn't until I actually got married and and when I got married, um, was kind of talking about some of this stuff with my wife and she's like, well, why don't you do that? You know, that sounds great. Um, so revisited all, all that material, went back to the journals, kind of discovered that Mark Sisson had got this whole thing going and quite this following. And I was like, okay, I'm jumping in, you know, um, full on. Um, within a week, um, my hands had stopped sweating profusely, which they'd always done that, you know, at school, I was sweaty boy. Um, so, um, and then within about three or four weeks, my wedding ring was falling off. The, my granddad's ring was falling off his signet ring, two rings that I wore, um, to the point where I just couldn't wear them anymore because, um, they weren't going to stay on and I was at risk of losing them. Um, and the mid afternoon energy dips just started to level out. Um, the brain fog disappeared. I started sleeping through the night. I used to get up three times in the night and pee. Um, and, and weight just started falling off. Um, and I, I wasn't particularly, you know, I wasn't thinking about weight necessarily as, as the main thing. Um, I'm sure I, you know, I thought I, 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 I do want to lose some. And certainly by the time I'm, you know, hitting another decade, I, I know that I need to have lost some weight. So that was in the back of my mind, but everything else started taking over. I was like, wow, I, I, I feel really different. Um, and I guess within about six months, um, I just felt like a completely different human. 
um, just really from edging back on the exercise, um, cutting out grains, the refined seed oils, and amping up everything else that was in my diet, diet, my taste buds came alive. I started deriving more benefit from food in terms of my taste buds, but also just feeling good, didn't get bloated anymore. Um, and yeah, I, I just felt all around great. And so um, when I discovered that there was um, a course to become accredited to, to essentially help other people do this, I thought, I really ought to do this. You know, I've got a background in this stuff. It felt like um, upcycling my career. Um, you know, I'd already got a background in this, sports science degree, that sort of thing, that way of thinking, but a sports psychology. Um, and what was really interesting um, is that, that going through the master coaching certification, I'm like, huh, I'm basically honing everything that I'd already been doing for years. And in so many different areas of my life, I've been coaching people without realizing that's what I'd been doing. You know, there were just conversations. Um, and then going through that certification, you know, same time as you um, and the other guys that we did it with and honing that craft. Um, I don't know if we ever shared a, a, a breakout room um, together. No, but I don't of, think we did. Yeah, we had those kind of real intense practice practice, practice sessions where mm -hmm. you coach and then you get grilled by everyone else. Um, and, and, you know, it a great bunch of people to do it with, you know, really, really kind and you know, the feedback's all constructive, but, you know, you really put on the spot. But actually, I, I found, oh, this is coming natural. And people are going, uh, have you done this before? And I'm like, uh, well, no, but yes, at the same time. Um, so it felt like, like a very natural fit. And I guess post-certification, it was just like, right, this is what I'm doing. Um, this is what I'm going to give myself to because I, I know the benefits I've had for me. I had, um, you know, they encourage you during the school and, you know, they're a brilliant school to certify with because they really push you business-wise as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even to pass your modules, it's like you've got to do that business building stuff. So within that, I had my sort of practice clients, test clients, and they got brilliant results. And they're like, oh my goodness, this has changed my life. They told their friends, they came in. Um, and so there was kind of a, a steady client stream off the back of certification. Um, and whilst it's, you know, it's not been crazy groundbreaking, um, you know, I'm not kind of doing that thing where, you know, you know, you get the, the kind of coaches out there who mm. become business coaches after their health coaches and they're like, mm -hmm. you know, in your six figure salary and, you know, I'm not there, but I'm able to earn a living from it. Um, and, and I absolutely love it. I hope you're enjoying the podcast, everyone. I absolutely love talking to people about health and about what helped them on their journey to find optimal health. And if you're one of those people who finds yourself tinkering with your own health and loves inspiring others and pulling the best out of others on their framework, on their journey to their own optimal health. If you've ever thought about becoming a health coach and helping others making an impact in that area, I can't recommend Primal Health Coach Institute enough. They provide the literature, the framework, the, the business concepts, everything you need to actually build a successful health coaching business that pulls from ancestral nutrition, fitness, all of that genetically consistent strategies that a lot of the new and emerging literature is quickly pointing towards as being able to help people reveal their genetic blueprint and work towards optimizing their own health. If health coaching is something you're interested in, always check out the links in the podcast for booking a discovery call with Primal Health Coach Institute. It's been instrumental in helping me make a successful business impacting others through health. You know, between jumping on calls within the day, coaching people, but still having the time to get out in the garden and provide most of my own food. Um, it's a brilliant lifestyle. Being able to set up a, 
a sustainable homestead that's getting there slowly. We've been here in our new place a year and a half, and we've done a fair amount of retrofitting already. Um, you know, it's just stuff that brings me so much life. And everything I'm doing, I, I believe, is something that I can model to other people and help them on that journey with as well. And, you know, that's a that's a privilege, really. And, you know, you get that. And I'm sure um, some of your listeners are going to get that, too. Mm-hmm. That was brilliant. Okay, so we, you went so many different directions. I'm going to pull you back to a big barrier that I heard you say and that a lot of people have where you're in university your curriculum is telling you one thing, but you're paying attention to all of the journals, all of the raw data on the back end. <clears throat> so you mentioned that you even steered one of your friends towards a more ancestral type of diet, but you didn't do it yourself. Was there a fear or what was the emotion or logic that was going on that prevented you from anecdotally doing it yourself, even though you were paying attention to the data? Was it just that that curriculum is so brainwashing for a word that it's, it just stills a good amount of fear. Like you're going to give yourself heart disease if you do this or what was the, what was the feeling behind it? Yeah. I, I think what you've just described there is, is, is accurate that it is really brainwashing and you're presented with data over and over again um, to the point where you're like, well, this has got to be right. You know, I've got professionals telling me this people with PhD after their name and you know, these guys are professors. Um, so th- I, I guess there wasn't a, uh, a noticeable fear in me it wasn't like oh am I going to do this no I, I think I might get heart disease but it was just um I guess it was easy to dismiss yeah. um the stuff that I was seeing that was contrary to the the conventional approach but thankfully not to the point where I completely dismissed it because I you know I was like oh, I think the science checks out here but I guess when your your grades are dependent on you presenting the information that has been presented to you, it becomes very difficult to challenge because you're literally writing about it and you know having to own that information yourself when you're made to write it and when you, you know that you're not going to get a grade for thinking outside the conventional. Um, I remember I went there once on, um, I, I kind of submitted a draft um, presentation of combining creatine and beta-analine because the, um, the data was quite early at that point on the two and they just threw it out and they were like, you know, you're not going to get any marks for this, this is nonsense. You know, look back now and it's like, oh, lots of people are stacking those two things together. But because it it wasn't the convention at the time, um, they, you know, they weren't going to grade it well. Um, and I think to, to have done anything as ancestral would have been far too left field for them within, you know, yeah. the institution. Let's give people, because we're in a bubble, right, of ancestral nutrition and, and primal stuff. Can you give people a little bit of context as to some of the stuff that you were reading at the time what was the convention that you were being taught and then what was the data that you were seeing otherwise just like a couple examples of big sweeping broad stroke stuff yeah so i mean the the big one um i think was was carb loading um you know that's you know still common with some athletes that's starting to, to swing you know as well now um you know we're we're probably a decade into swinging away from that um, in, in, a, in a, you know, in a number of circles, even in the mainstream. Um, but yeah, that was a, a big thing back then. If you're an endurance athlete, you have absolutely got to carb load because that's your, you know, your body's preferred energy and everybody gets to that 20 mile point in a marathon and they start falling apart because they're having to dig into body fat and accessing body fat's really difficult. Yes, it is. If, if you're not, you know, metabolically efficient and you can't, you know, you've trained your body to, to not access body fat well. 
Um, and I guess this was the pushback from from someone like Tim Noakes. You know, that was the name that I was that I remember being aware of at that time. Um, and I remember Tim Noakes saying, "Well, we didn't evolve that way. We must have used different methods of accessing energy. Our, our ancestors would have had to have been on the go a long time." Um, and I guess Sisson was sort of saying the same stuff back then as well. Um, but I, you know, I don't remember seeing you know his name pop up as much. I guess within the academic world. Um, Tim Noakes had, had been doing a lot more work for a, a lot longer, particularly on the endurance stuff. And, you know, Mark's got that um, lived experience, yeah. uh, but he wasn't coming from the academic st standpoint. So I guess that was the big thing was, do we really need that amount of carbohydrate? Um, and then I guess from there, that filtered down into, you know, over the coming years, uh, looking back onto to grains in particular, but, yeah. you know, broad stroke was just the, um, the heavy carb approach. Gotcha. Yeah. And I was drilled in with that information in high school. Cause I did cross country in middle school and high school just destroyed my knees. Cause I was taught to run incorrectly. Well, I should say I wasn't, um, they didn't teach how to run. They assumed you knew how to run, but if you grow up in sort of newish, um, sneakers or running shoes with massive differences in the heel and the toe on pavement, it's going to be a bad time regardless. So uh, that was one thing, but every night before a race, and we were only doing five Ks. So this was, you know, 3.1, whatever miles. It wasn't a long time, but you know, it's long enough for, for high school. And we would just have pasta dinners over at my cross country coach's house. And I felt so awful afterwards. I mean, just balls of spaghetti. <laughs> and I basically grew up on spaghetti. So it was just like, just an enormous amount of pleasure, but uh, yeah, it was brutal and you don't obviously exhaust your, your glu uh, glycogen stores on a 5k. So it, it doesn't really matter that much. You could just do nothing to prepare and you'd be fine. But when you're, I had a very, very inspirational cross country coach and she still did marathons, but she did the traditional way. She just kind of ran her body into the ground, trained every day, she did the Boston marathon. Cause I grew up in New Hampshire and she was great, but it was just a very high inflammatory, like everyone was in so much physical pain mm -hmm. just after eating and then after the race. And you're a kid, so you rebound quickly. You don't notice the metabolic damage. But if you try to do that whenever you don't have that massive buffer of just being in your teens, yeah, you start to notice the inflammation. Just things don't go away if you're not actively recovering or loading yourself up with anti-inflammatories. So similar sorry anything else that comes to mind besides carb loading for the data difference you were encountering yeah I, I think the um and you just kind of alluded to it there is that training load really of just push 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 um you know you want to be overreaching constantly but you know not hitting over training so there was an awareness that there was a, a limit to where our bodies could go but we wanted to hang out on that limit all the time because it was all about um you know that cranking up the performance constantly um can you flip your training round so that you're doing you know weight session cardio session and then probably some mobility work all in one day um and i, I remember i was getting up to do a, a run to the pool i would do a swim um get back and that was before lectures in the morning so before 9 a.m i crammed all that in three o'clock i was in the gym because that's when it opened and then in the evening i was trying to find whatever sport i could do you know i was i was playing for the the rugby team but i'd also train with the football team the hockey team badminton team <laughs> i would just be doing whatever um and you know i again that's kind of the, i was in the buffer of my teens um so i could get away with it that's 
that's the only way I did get away with it. And I tried to continue doing that in my twenties. And, you know, that's when things really started falling apart. Yeah. That's what I hear from quite a few people. My last podcast was, was a, um, you know, his 20s gentleman, Lucas Hale, he did Olympic weightlifting, a uh, strong man, and he just beat his body to crap. And you can do it in your early 20s. That's the time to do it because you are just regenerating so quickly. Your hormones almost don't care what you do. Um, but yeah, you hit, it seems to be like a 25 for mm. guys seems to be the point where you're just like, Ooh, I might need to switch this up because the pain and the inflammation just doesn't go away as quickly. And you need to start paying attention to what you're doing in your body a little bit. And that's usually where people find their, the start of their health journey with how do I regenerate? Maybe treat my body a little better. Well, uh, what did you do? When did you, um, start your, your six month, um, journey? That's a real fast transformation. What did you feel or what did you do specifically during your little six month uh, weight loss, energy, all of that that you described earlier? What were you? Would you actually change? Um, so the big one was a, a real complete elimination of grains, refined yeah. seed oils, um, to a degree sugar, um, yeah. not crazily, um, but you know I probably wasn't having that much refined sugar anyway, and and, and still don't. But I'm I'm really not afraid of sugar. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, now I know I've got the metabolic flexibility to right. to handle it, and you know I'll spike and I'll come back down, and that's fine. Um, but it, it was those two things really, and I, I guess from from reading the Primal Blueprint inside out, I was like, okay, these are the things I really need to um, to work on. And then I mean, the hard one was the exercise piece. Yeah. Um, it really was kind of hanging back. I, I was I was an endorphin junkie, um, and literally. So when when I first got married, my wife would say if I hadn't trained for a couple of days and I was getting a bit cranky, she was like, "You need to go into the garden." And I would go out and probably do a heavy leg session. Um, even if I'd already done one um, in the week, I'd go out and do another heavy leg session because that's where I felt, you know, like most buzzy off the back of it. Um, so having to pull those back in um, and, and do a lot more long, slow endurance, recognizing that I did not have an aerobic base. Um, every time I went out for a run, I was, you know, I was just relying on my anaerobic system the whole time i was pushing and pushing and pushing and allowing the endorphins to carry me through and because i'd i'd built a heck load of mental resilience over the years so i could get away with doing that you know i i could push it until i literally got home and fell down and everything cramped yeah. um and i'd be like you know celebrating that so having to pull back from that was quite difficult um initially um but basically flipping um, that mental toughness and going, no, I need to do this. I'm going to push for it through. I'm going to give this my all, even though it feels like I'm not giving it my all. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a real kind of mental game that I had to play with myself um, to get there. So that that was a big, big change for me. Um, slowing the pace of life down as well. Um, I was a big believer that I could just gun it all day, every day. And productivity meant being glued to the task um, and learning actually that, that's actually quite inefficient. Learning to start taking breaks, particularly if I was working at a screen, looking into the distance, getting regular movement in, movement movement snacks became a big thing and yeah. micro workouts. Micro workouts. Oh yeah. Love myself some micro workouts. Just made a post about it. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, that was a real lifesaver actually, because that would be one where when um when I was starting to feel that itch where previously I'd have gone out and you know it would have been a, a heavy leg session, I could actually just switch it up for some crawls or um, some swings, some pull-ups, you know, whatever. 
Um, and that would just give me a little mental boost, a little break from the task, get back to it, feel fresh. At the same time, I was reading some productivity books mm. and they were suggesting, you know, Pomodoro timers, that sort of thing. I'm like, oh, this fits really well. Um, so I started doing that. And from that, started to better regulate. I noticed the, I used to get um, aural migraines where I wouldn't necessarily have a headache, but um, my vision wouldn't quite be right. And I'd feel a bit off, a little bit dizzy. They completely cleared as well. And I think that was a combination of all those things, you know, backing off on the exercise, not working um you know quite so hard but working smart um and you know there's the other stuff as well like making sure i'm getting appropriate sunlight that's never been something i've particularly struggled with i've, I've always you know um, been a bit of a sun worshiper um, um and you know now rather than you know just slopping on the sun cream and you know going out and going well i'll get as much as i can it's kind of getting it without the sun cream and then finding shade and just keeping that appropriate um, and I found that my circadian rhythm just, just came into alignment as well. Um, so that wasn't really something I had to work on. I just started sleeping better through the night. And by the time it got to 10 o'clock, I was, I was ready for bed. I was feeling tired. I wasn't having the mid afternoon energy dip. I wasn't slumping. Um, but I was, you know, ready for bed at the right time, woke up feeling refreshed and, and ready to go again the next day. Um, so yeah, it, and that yeah, it was about six months that initial period, and I think I probably had I probably had a three year lag after that um, until I really noticed the next big breakthrough, um, which I think three years was probably the point where I would say I was back to optimized um, in terms of really understanding my body inside out, knowing when I could um, change things up um getting to the point where i thought okay i've been doing this for an, you know a time now and my body's ready for something different i need to hit it with you know slightly higher carbohydrate amount for instance um for a season before lowering it again uh, and it took me it took me a little longer to get down into the minutia but that initial six months was you know the big breakthroughs what were you doing for carbohydrate amount during that six month time frame what do you think you're at were you ever a big measure and tracker or did you just go with what felt good and yeah to, to begin with i didn't measure or track at all um i literally got rid of the grains and relied on the fact that that would be taking me down to an appropriate amount and you know the the weight loss and the feeling good suggests that that was somewhere about in the right zone since then um you know i periodically track i'm not a big tracker i'm not an advocate for my clients tracking um some do because they they like it fair enough um, most don't, and it, you know, it's a, it's a pain in the backside, um, yeah. to do all the time, but, you know, occasionally doing a three day, um, you know, just check in with yourself, make sure you're keeping yourself honest. Um, that can be helpful. Yeah, exactly. I hate tracking. It just takes, like, I already don't care about food. Like I don't have any real, I've never cared so much about taste or even really texture. Like I can eat basically the same thing every day and be perfectly fine with it. Like I derive my pleasure from so many other things. Food is not my, my main source of pleasure, but tracking it makes it even less appealing. Like if I didn't have to eat, I wouldn't like, I just don't, it's not a huge facet of my life, but I also just eat very satiating foods. So I never have any real things. <laughs> There's a lot of fish in there. There's a lot of steak, things that I'm just like, no, I'm just happy all the time. I don't really care. A lot of berries. But yeah, tracking can be one of the biggest barriers for people. I make people do it for a week just because that's a baseline. 
and then maybe we'll do it again just to make sure that the people aren't sneaking in like weight loss community is a little weird but a lot of liquid calories i think mm-hmm. um who was the guy who wrote genius foods anyways he's big on um social media but it's usually it's liquid calories that do people in a lot of the time so it's sodas or a lot of the highly processed even juices like just mm. there's a lot of well blood sugar spiking insulin disrupting and just a lot of calories in liquids and if people are trying to do if they're going through the effort of counting calories like that might be like 250 to 500 calories in a drink and if mm-hmm. you can replace that, and that's the opposite with uh, weight gain, which is actually my, my current endeavor. And I work with a lot of skinny guys and it's just like, drink your calories. If you want to go the other way, like if you need help getting, if you're eating such satiating foods as ancestral foods, just m- nutrient dense where you're just not actually hungry all the time, but you still need an excess, small excess, like two to 400 extra calories, like coconut milk and just protein and fruit in drinks are your best friend just to shove calories down because <laughs> it just doesn't like disrupt the hunger signals but uh yeah eliminating grains is a massive one that's usually when people ask like can i just do something simple just to play with and see how i feel yeah if you can get rid of refined seed oils like you mentioned and grains it it's a huge oxidative load off like refined seed oils are hard to describe to people what they're doing inside of your body. Like it's not just the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio because that gets into the weeds of science and most people don't care that much. That's an optimization thing. It's more so just the like rusting. Like most of them are rancid. They're oxidized. An oxidation just means like not in its whole form. Like already, if you think about rust, that's oxidation. And if you want to think about it, like cutting an apple open, cutting an avocado open and let it just sit out. And it looks like it's rusting or aging. So that's what the seed oil is doing. They're mostly byproducts of industry. Like we are not supposed to eat those things. They're just ways for grape manufacturers, vineyards. They're ways for industries that are selling something else to dispose and sell a waste product. Most of the time, you can definitely do... Like, Have you ever grown your own sunflowers and done sunflower seed oil? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, can you grow this in your garden? Right. Yeah. How um, much effort would this take to have it in its whole form? Uh, and would you be willing to do it? And most of the time it's no. I mean, but that's for all the good ones too. I mean, that's why saturated fat's usually easiest because people would have had access to saturated fat because it stores so long without oxidation. But the the seed oils are, if you have to describe the process of getting that onto into a bottle to someone and all of the chemical processing most people are like okay fine i get it <laughs> yeah you start talking about the bleaching and deodorization yeah. and you know people you can see the whites in people's eyes yeah yeah it's enough usually we're like okay fine i get it but yeah those are two huge ones do you do a pantry purge with your coaching still yeah i do um especially when i do um like a 21 day reset yeah yeah then that's that's one of the start because I guess when you're doing one-on-one coaching, you're you're going at the client's pace. You've got you know eight, twelve weeks, or you know potentially even longer, depending on you know yeah. how they come to you and the way they want to spin it. Um, in which case, you you may go slightly more gently with the twenty-one day thing. It's like right, we're just going straight in there. I'm going to 
pretty much tell you what to do. Whether you follow through or not, that, that's up to you. Um, but together, I, I always run that in a group format, um, pretty much. Um, so it's kind of like, okay, we're all going to try this together. You know, stick it in a box, put it in your garage, put it in the shed, out of sight, out of mind. Um, let's just get it out of the way. And then, you know, we'll, we'll restock um, with some more supportive foods. Odds are you've probably got supportive foods in your house anyway. Yeah. Um, most people who end up working with me have already tried some stuff previously. So that, you know, they're going to have some fruit and veg around. They're going to have some good meat um, around. Um, but yeah, just getting those things out of the way normally is the biggest thing. I think with food, um, it's it's the the subtraction actually that really helps rather than the potential additions. And yeah, yeah as, as you start getting to the minutiae, you start to turn the screw, you want to put those um additions in there but to begin with it's definitely getting those two things out of the way um that that just revolutionizes mm. people um i've got a kind of year-round community group um nice. and they were referring back to their um uh, or some of the people on the call yesterday were referring back to their reset and they're like, i couldn't believe how different i felt in the first week um of just having got those out of my life and yeah i'm still seeing these improvements but that first week of getting rid of those was was absolute game changer do you find any real sustainable change that can happen without changing your environment? Have you found that ever? Um, no. Yeah. Um, blunt answer. Um, certainly wasn't true for me. It was that environmental change that was the trigger and the the support. Um, and you know, if you don't get those things out of the way, they're going to be staring at you. And, you know, out of sight, out of mind or you know, insight in mind, I think holds true all the time. You, you've got to craft your environment. I think as a species, that's one of the places that we are, are so unique is we have such a broad ranging top down effect on our environment, which we can spin to our advantage. Or if we're not mindful of it, um, you know, we can run away with the, the profit motive or the looking good motive or, you know, whatever it is mm -hmm. to the point where our environment ends up kind of being our downfall yeah well said on a so nutrition you would still say would be the biggest mover for most people i think so the way the way i always describe it is um because we're products of our environment and because our genes are being turned on and off by our environment food is the environment that we're taking and putting with inside ourselves right it's always going to have the most visceral effect because you know, it's it's literally that change from inside out. It, you know, you are what you eat. Um, as trite and as, you know, overused that saying is, it, it it's so true. Yeah, it's information, right? So there's uh -huh. information through media, there's information through what you put in your body and what you put in your body willingly or, or knowingly or unknowingly. So there's environmental toxins and all that. Um, so nutrition is the big one. What did you notice in your journey to sort of be the cascading effects like it sounds like you started with nutrition and then movement was there already were there any other sort of epigenetic or lifestyle things that you you did to optimize after those broad sweeping ones so movement nutrition are usually the big ones and then what did you play with down the road to sort of optimize like lighting or anything like that yeah so um lighting was um was definitely kind of a probably third or fourth thing really was um, changing the lights in the house, uh, making sure that they had options. Um, so I've never been big into to glasses and having them on my face. I know that you've got a pair on right now. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I got a ring light on in front of me. That's the only reason. It's just a lot of white light at me right now. 
Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we switched up the lights in the house so that we used to have LED ones um, that would kind of change at the right time of day. So the sun would go down, they would go down as well, become more orange. Um, we now have similar ones, but ones you can kind of override and just just with the way that you use the switch, you can flick them on and off a couple of times and they'll they'll change their their frequency and, and go down to sort of, you know, 1,200 Kelvin rather than being up near 3,000. Yeah. Uh, and so the standard lights that come on in the lounge, um, those ones behind me, mm-hmm. uh, they're sort of like a real, real orange. Um, so, um, you know, whatever time of day or night you put those on, um, they're more firelight glow. Yeah. Um, then you can also put some spots on as well. So there are lots of options for, for low light, um, blocking everything out in the bedroom, um, yeah. big one. Um, we've become super light sensitive, like yeah. the, the more, <laughs> the more we've, um, optimized light. Um, the more we've had to optimize light. So we recently had all our windows retrofitted. So now, the, you know, there are bits of the inside of our walls hanging off and then you replastering and things. So it means we haven't got a blind. So we've been sticking things to the windows to try and, you know, make sure all of the cracks of light uh, are out. Um, and then we have the kind of dichotomy of do we have a window open to get fresh air in yeah. or do we save the light? <laughs> and we, we have one night where it's really stuffy and we're like, oh, we're going to have to open a window and then it's too light. And it's like, oh, we'll go back to closing the window um we just need to get the plaster in is the yeah. <laughs> is the real solution so we get the blinds back up so yeah um light was a big one um i'm just trying to think uh what else uh, let me go over that real briefly for people who, who have no idea what we're talking about so this is circadian rhythm uh optimization and management and it's a big part of basically sleep hygiene but mostly just hormone leveling so our body is very photosensitive and what we're going over is there's your body is communicating with your environment all the time, right? So at the full sun part of the day, so midday is when you get the most blue light naturally. So we're just trying to mimic whatever the sun is emitting. So probably around late afternoons when the blue light, eh, yeah, maybe three or four is when the blue light starts to fade and then transitions into more yellow, orange, and then red. So I have like white LEDs on me right now, but like you, I have a lamp that I just put orange and yellow lights in. And I won't be super, I used to be way more religious about it. Like I would step down yellow, orange, red, but now, and that's just mimicking firelight, campfire light. So you're, and the, the blue disappears from the sun and you get more softer hues, like during a sunset. So next to my bed, I have like a campfire light, like it's pretty dim red light. So there's almost no actual, like it doesn't do anything. My hormones just so I can see softly, but a lot of people notice dramatic differences in sleep if they just if they just get rid of the white and blue light from especially their bedroom leds too like the study that was that kind of just made me chuckle i think it was in the curriculum was just there was i'll find this at some point but they flashed an led on the back of someone's knee in the middle of the night and they had brainwave scanners hooked up to them and the brain would light up just with like a 30 second once once every 30 seconds a pulse of an led on the back of your knee would light your brain up so your your skin even is very photosensitive so even if it's not coming in your eyes like your body is is noticing it so any of that stuff can disrupt that deep sleep that you really feel restored for so that's yeah in a nutshell that's what um all of the ancestral nerds do is just change all the lighting most people know blue light's bad for you know your phone has a blue light filter but it does really help me to have the orange, the yellow, the softer, dimmer light to step down and to sleep at night. It's, it's a nice transition instead of just like 
white light and then nothing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's so much more natural, isn't it? Our body's expecting that kind of stepped response as the sun goes yeah. down. And maybe we have that campfire light and serotonin starts up regulating its conversion to melatonin. And, yeah. you know, it's just that natural drift into sleep. So, yeah, I think it's really helpful to do that. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so you are also a, would you call yourself a farmer or a gardener? Uh, a gardener, yeah, definitely a gardener. When did that start? How'd you get into, that's almost more fascinating for me as how people get into growing their own food and take, did you think of it when you ever, you started as taking control of your nutrition or was it just like an enjoyable hobby? Um, I, I think it actually started as a, uh, a sort of care for the planet sort of thing okay. of a, you know, these are some crazy food miles that we've got for our food and kind of, you know, looking at the labels and thinking, hang on a minute it's midsummer here in the uk why do we have tomatoes from africa right this is, this is ridiculous mm-hmm. um and then you know so we started buying local we started buying organic um we started buying regenerative and then it was like well the next phase from that surely is to reduce the, the food miles to food meters um and this it really i think I'm trying to figure out the timeline here. I think we started that journey a little bit before mm-hmm. uh, I started my my certification with Primal, but um, there was a point of crossover as well where um, I'm studying permaculture mm-hmm. uh, and then started, you know, really digging deep into the research uh, around ancestral lifestyle ahead of doing the certification. Um, but at that time, becoming fascinated by the microbiome, mm-hmm. uh, kind of going, oh my goodness, what is going on in the soil here? Um, you know, this is a, a living community of organisms and then the gut microbiome, huh, this is a living community of organisms and it's not incidental that they're both living communities and, you know, one is meant to inform the other. We're meant to be taking in the information from the soil and that's meant to be going into our stomach. And, you know, we're seeing the research now on the the information transfer between the microbiome and the mitochondria, the bacterial cell um, that's inside um, our cells produce that energy for us. And, you know, that's, I think that science is going to blow up over the next couple of years. Um, so that's one to keep our eyes on. Um, but yeah, I started to, to recognize that the soil health was really linked to human health as well as planetary health. Um, and so I started geeking out on that and, you know, soil science is one of those things that's kind of compared to paint drying, um, as being a, a really boring science. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is the opposite. This, this stuff's like amazing um and i think i you know i've always had a real interest in anthropology you know what really makes us human um evolutionarily um sociologically theologically politically um and, and in my degree i ended up kind of looking at that um you know what does make us human that was my dissertation really um and so so looking at, at this kind of you know looking at what's going on in the soil and our microbiome and how that leads to, to our health and planetary health that that was like really scratching my itch intellectually um but from there we start growing our own food there's something magical about planting a seed and it becoming you know something that you nurture and watch and then you get to eat it in the end and you know that whole slow food movement i think that mindfulness piece around it was just great and i really noticed that um that you know the benefits of mental health uh, benefits of, of gardening of being out in nature oh, yeah. green, the fresh air the bird song grounding um you know that was something that i discovered kind of accidentally really i thought you know i just feel good through doing this and um i was at a friend's farm and they were talking about lavender bathing 
Um, and uh, I looked into lavender bathing and discovered grounding and went and read the journal articles on that and was like, ah, oh, this stuff really checks out. And again, it was just one of those things where um, things just fell into place. You know, it was like, oh, this, this makes sense. Of course it makes sense. Um, this is how we've evolved to being in contact with the earth and, and you know, our, our electron, electron discharge. Um, and um, so, yeah, I started... Um, experiencing, I guess, a coalescence of lots of geeky things, but in a very just normal everyday being out in the garden of this hits so many of those points. You find yourself in ancestral resting poses when you're out in the garden. Yeah, you, know, you do. You're, you're in a deep squat. You're in a side bent sit. You crawl from plant to plant. Um, so, so you're getting that low level movement all day, every day. You're getting sunlight. You're getting nature exposure. You're eating great food. You're mm -hmm. rehabbing microbiome um and um yeah just derived a heck load of enjoyment from there and found that we saved a heck load of money as well yeah um, as, as a family so um the first year we started rehabbing this plot so this was where my grandparents used to live and we were caring for my grandma during her decline mm. so we started using this place um in the first year we we spent 744 pounds and got a thousand pounds worth of organic produce Last year, we spent, I think, £122 and got £5,000 worth of organic produce. Um, this year, we have, we've put a bit more in because um, we've bought a few more trees. Uh, we are extending the greenhouse setup. We've got a workshop. Um, so we're, we're probably at a few thousand pounds worth of investment this year in the garden. Um, but even just as a, a kind of carryover from last year, I, I'm expecting to probably hit seven or eight thousand pounds worth of organic produce, a lot of which we haven't even planted this year. It's just self-seeded because we didn't get around to, you know, clearing things up properly mm -hmm. at the end of last year. Um and, and some people would come around and just go, oh man, some of this, you know, the food forest at the moment is a mess because, you know, there are the the trees that are quite young and around it are just what they would consider weeds, but right. you know, nearly, nearly all of them are edible. And if they're not, they're they're performing a function within the system and helping grow some of the edibles um so you know back end of this season it's going to need a little bit of care and maintenance but um you know actually all of that work i was i was raking a little bit today and i'm thinking oh man this is just a great workout it is uh, raking is intense it's a whole yeah. bunch of stabilization <laughs> core work your shoulders like all the little um all the little slow twitch just go i'm very sore after raking because <laughs> i rarely do something like that and you're only sore if you do something that your body is not used to so there's a bunch of great exercises that are like mulching or just mm. any of those twisting obviously like do a little warm-up before you do that because you can tweak your back but anything in the garden is a great workout yeah and you i think you've got everything there because you've got yeah. those big lifts that tend to happen in winter where you're moving soil around and you know you i mean i, I choose not to use a wheelbarrow for that sort of thing i put it in a gorilla bucket mm -hmm. and uh you know get it up on my shoulder clean it True. up there yeah. and, and take a wander and it takes a bit longer people go this is mad and i'm like yeah this is a stacked activity in time this saves me time because i i don't have a gym membership i don't need to right. work out at some point um i'm getting all that out there yeah um, it's crossfit i mean it it's the exact yeah. same thing as crossfit i think <laughs> last year i made a couple of videos if you just were either running with a wheelbarrow full <laughs> up a hill or yeah use a bucket and just like do a little clean and press, put it up on your shoulder. There's no difference. And you are always off kilter. Nothing is centered, right? So you're always getting a great core workout. The only thing that I would say is I have hurt my lower back so many times because you just don't think about it being a workout. And mm -hmm. if you start lifting some heavy, like a heavy bucket, 
Yeah, definitely do a little bit of a warm up before if you're going to treat it like a workout so you don't tweak your lower back like me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I think going out and starting with like a gentle bit of pruning or something like that just so you're getting moving before you get onto the heavy lifting that works really well. Yeah, agreed. Do you find that so you wouldn't have noticed any tremendous difference in because you've been growing your food for so long, you wouldn't have seen such a dramatic improvement whenever um, you started growing your food because you didn't do the, you didn't coincide the growing of your own food with any of the uh, other health changes, correct? I mean, I think there were, there probably was a point of crossover, so it'd be difficult to kind of say it yeah. was growing our own food that, that made that change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it, it wouldn't be a clean test. Yeah. It wasn't like I was already living ancestrally and then made that switch. Um, yeah. but I think, you know, intuitively, I know that the two have gone together really well. Um, and I, I totally wouldn't be surprised, um, you know, if, if we could analyze it somehow right. to find a massive change, particularly in, in things like the microbiome. I mean, the diversity of plant matter that I eat now is, is yeah. insane. Um, I showed my clients um, last week, I made, I made a frittata that had yes. about 30, 35 different vegetables in from the garden. And, you know, a lot of those were weeds and, you know, flower heads that people would normally, yep. normally consider eating and just going, you know, because I, I think, uh, I don't know if you, you, you come across Tim Spector, British mm-hmm. guy. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's, he's kind of, you know, made a bit of some headlines over here saying, you know, we need to have 30 different plants a week. That's what we should be aiming for. And I'm like, heck, you can get that in a meal. Um, you know, you can get that diversity easily. Cause I think a lot of people, they're still on that five fruit and veg thing. Um, and, and that's the, the five or maybe 10 that they're used to. Um, but it's so easy to go really diverse, especially when you're growing your own, because you're not limited by what the supermarkets right. uh, themselves, you can, you know, you can go for heritage, heritage varieties. You can yeah. go for that normally wouldn't grow here. If you can create your own little microclimate, if you, you know how to do that, you know, you've got a good in, in, in my hemisphere, and I think your hemisphere, yeah. um, you know, you've got a self facing wall, you know, you can create a little microclimate and grow some, some interesting tropical things in there. Um, yeah you know, and, and just get that diversity. So I don't know the UK food system at all. We have a three U S has a three day, just in time food system where you're, you're three days away from nothing being the supermarket. What do you know the UK food system at in depth at all? Like how, where did most of your stuff come from? Is there a good amount of local production? Like what did you find whenever you started trying to buy local and all that? Yeah. Buying local is actually pretty easy um so it, it is more difficult in supermarkets but you know there's a you know a good amount of veg box services around um we're right in the middle of the country um here in stafford so we're kind of surrounded um by by agriculture not too far out of the town um so it's very easy here to get some some local stuff um people buying in the supermarkets really started to struggle after brexit mm-hmm. um and it, you know, there were kind of there's ambiguity around how things were meant to be coming into the country and how things were documented. And, you know, there were lorries just backed up. We had, um, you know, pictures on the news of lorries just um, in other ports in France, um, couldn't get across to the UK, um, coinciding with COVID as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also coinciding with a lot of people leaving the country who felt insecure here, um, understandably, because um, racism was on the up. And a lot of those um workers from eastern europe would have been working in um the fruit industry the vegetable industry doing picking there was talk of things just going to rot on the plant 
Um, and then people were freaking out because they couldn't get it in their supermarkets. Um, people who were buying local veg boxes were absolutely fine. Right. Um, and um, so it's it's totally doable here. Um, I think if everyone were to do it, we might start to struggle. We're, we're, we're pretty dense compared to the US mm. um, here. Um, and it would take quite a while for everyone to catch up to more sensible food production systems, you know, right. regenerative agriculture and stacked systems like permaculture, food forests, et cetera. Um, we're, you know, we're so used to that monocrop model, which is so inefficient. Yeah, it, you know, drives you a quick crop of one thing if you, you know, absolutely nail the the, the soil and everything that's living in right. there and don't have any ambiguity. Um, so I, I think we would we would really struggle um, if we were to have a repeat of, of what we had during the Brexit thing. So I think that shows that we're dependent on yep. particularly Europe around us um, and lots of things coming in from Eastern Europe, like, you know, uh romania albania places like that are now sort of being referred to as the breadbasket yeah um of, of of europe and you know that's a an unfortunate term because it's not just grain sure there's you know there's a heck load of grain like there is everywhere but also there's a lot of other produce that comes in from that. it's just a fertile soil i'm assuming much like the midwest of the u.s which is probably the least fertile soil at this point because we've exhausted it so much but yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same. And what's really interesting about the UK is that we can get away with a heck of a lot here. We have an extremely favourable climate, given where we are. We benefit hugely from the buffering of the sea. We've got the Gulf Stream coming up, um, you know, from um, Central America. Um, so that buffers our temperatures hugely. It's very warm here compared to what it should be. Mm. Um, and and we get away with abusing the soil um, in a way that. You know, when we've taken our farming practices around the world, when we decided it would be a great idea to invade everywhere and say, hey, farm like us has caused, you know, massive right. collapse. You, so, you know, it's very, very forgiving here. You can regenerate quickly. Um, so if we were to change our agricultural practices, we'd probably do very well, um, you know, pretty quickly on, on changing to more sensible regenerative agriculture. Um, and it's happening on the fringe. You know, I guess like it is in the States, there are, there are some states that are moving forward with, you know, banning glyphosate for instance mm. and looking at giving farmers subsidies for looking after the soil and that in theory is happening here but the the right things aren't in place to aid that transition there's not yeah. a stop for farmers making that transition so those policies need thinking through a little bit more or you know farmers are going to have to come up with the the sort of sideline businesses to give yeah. them that stop as they change which some are um but it's a big risk to to yeah. take um, there are some organizations that are doing a good job of helping people transition and providing the right markets for them as they transition as well. Um, so most of the meat we buy in our house is, is fully re regenerative. Wow. Some of it is organic that's not fully regenerative yet because the farmers aren't getting there. And the company we buy through are suggesting that we buy th from those making a transition as well because it's going to help them become regenerative. And in the long term, that's going to benefit everyone. Right. Um, both we're going to have a greater variety of what we can buy and the farmers are more incentivized to work that way and are, and are giving a marketable product in the meantime i got a slightly controversial but more i just want to pick your brain um have you been following carnivore movement at all yeah yeah um it crops up a lot i think in yep. in our well, a lot of it's AIP, so autoimmune protocol. Basically, if your immune system is just going haywire from usually too many grains, but too many large molecules slipping through small intestine, just intestinal permeability, and your immune system going bananas because nothing other than like broken down glucose, amino acids, and lipids are supposed to get through that. Carnivore, I think, has hit a nerve with the AIP crowd just because it's almost a complete elimination diet. But the argument in it, 
I mean, it has fantastic results to speak with. So that's why it pisses people off so much because it's the polar opposite of everything that the conventional model has taught and people are losing stupid amounts of weight and just energy skyrocketing um, once they become fat adapted. But the argument is about the microbiome, which is why why I thought about it. It's, yeah, but don't you need fiber and um, short chain fatty acids and other you know, direct bacteria and or the um, prebiotics to feed them to have diversity. And that's the big question since the microbiome research is still very, very new. So what's your opinion on, I have my own, but I'll, I'll do it after yours. What do you think about that diet and microbiome diversity or just gut health? Mm. So I think, you know, at the outset, just kind of in agreement with you there that it does have really good results. It totally has a place within the AIP. Yeah. Um, sort of scenario um i don't think you can argue with the results really you know people right. make back from the brink of of all sorts of health disasters and and you know syndromes etc um for, for me i think the 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 crunch comes when you're playing the long game mm-hmm. uh, which is how long can you sustain that for without seeing some sort of inverse effect and i think yeah. um i think any extreme sort of diet um like that um i'd want to see some longer term data and we don't have it yet because it's a fairly it's a fairly new yeah, movement. new yeah yeah um so i'd be interested to see how it works in the long term i you know i know some people have been carnivore and have eventually had to wean themselves back onto um having some vegetable or or fruit products usually yeah. kind of entering with usually entering with berries maybe a little yeah. bit of honey yeah. um and then slowly rehabbing their microbiome. I guess like people who do sort of a FODMAP um, right. sort of diet, they eliminate all of those. But after a while, um, they start to feel sluggish and feel like they, they're they needing some of those um, kind of higher FODMAP foods in their diet again. And once they get their stress levels under control, um, which you know often is the thing that gets missed out, I think, on a right. low, low FODMAP thing, um, is, is that gentle reintroduction, strategic reintroduction, um, allowing the microbiome biome to adapt um because ultimately it's not us doing the digestion it's it's the microbes um hence why i think probably going carnivore is 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 so successful um for many people in the short term because they've you know they've completely wrecked their microbiome probably um and are needing to to kind of really simplify and and i think that's what it is it's it's simplification right um this ultimate elimination diet yeah 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 I think that's a good way of, of phrasing it. And then slowly building back up, probably like the same of, of any elimination diet. That would be my hunch. I think we've got early indications of that from people who've been through it and are coming out the other side of it now. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we trend that way. My other big concern with it um, is if loads of people were to do it, 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 it really would not be sustainable. The The current way we're providing meat for ourselves isn't sustainable. And unless we massively change that, um, we're, you know, we're not going to be able to feed everyone on a methodology even close to that or even close to what most people are doing right now. Right, right. But some people are usually just thinking about their specific health, in which case you don't care if it's doable at scale. But yeah, I agree with you. If everyone, uh, maybe though, I mean, you just don't eat a lot if you're on that diet, maybe twice a day. And it's, mm. made, yeah, I mean, I don't know. We do have a lot of like 30 year anecdotes before the diet was a thing. People are like, I've been doing this for like 30 years and everything's great. But some people have very different metabolisms and are great at oxidizing fat. Some people are a little 
slower at it. And yeah, stress is a huge player. Like you just don't metabolize fat as well if your cortisol is just jacked up all the time. But yeah, the the performance around it's very interesting too. There's a number of doctors that are Anthony Chaffe, um, Saladino was the one that started it, right? Him and Sean Baker, all of these guys are are not overweight people. So that's the question is, you know, Salad- Paul Saladino found um, he did carnivore-ish after he basically you know wrote the book on carnivore. And then it was like, eh, maybe add a little more autumnal. Uh, so not a lot. He is the antioxidant guy who blew my view of antioxidants apart. He's like, no, 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 no. These are pro-oxidants. They just trigger antioxidant systems within the body. Because I was growing microgreens at the time I read the book. And I was like, wait, what? So when I when he was just like, sulforaphane is definitely a pro-oxidant. Like it's only created when you break the cell while chewing it. It is a uh, pesticide, essentially. You're eating a pesticide that's created by the plant. It just happens to tick your NRF2 and glutathione through the roof which isn't necessarily a good thing. So I was like, oh, this is an interesting perspective. He was just like curcumin, resveratrol. Like these are all pro-oxidants. Most people just don't get any activation of their immune system, which is why if you have AIP or if you have autoimmune, eliminating those often helps. Um, But the question is, right, what is the damage being caused by? Because we should be able to tolerate almost anything. So it's right an elimination and back to more stable being able to tolerate everything. But that one poked a hole in my my brain for a while. And then I tried carnivore and I was like, oh, this does work. Very interesting. But you definitely have to be fat adapted. Like I would not go from high carb to that. That would be a nightmare. <laughs> oh, well, that's, nightmare. You know, that's like people who jump into just to jump to keto like three days. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, keto or intermittent fasting and, and think, oh, this feels like rubbish. And it's like, well, you didn't put the, you know, the baby steps in first. Yeah. You know? We went for a fairly advanced strategy off the bat. Right. Um, you know, for our ancestors, fasting, you know, was just, just part of life. Normal. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, even if we just go back a couple of thousand years or even a couple of hundred years, um, fasting would have just been part of life. Um, yeah. So if people jump into it without doing the, you know, the background first, you know, they're always going to run the risk of screwing themselves up. Yeah. Um, and I think that's true for, for most of these, these diets. Um, and I think, um, I, I think what's really interesting is the the argument of, of foods being hormetic stresses as well. Yes, right. Um, that, you know, a lot of those leafy greens, part of the benefit there comes from the fact that we're having a stress response to them. Yeah. Any of the brassicas, yeah, anything in the, the yeah. mustard family, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and and in some ways, when you when you allow the brassicas to go wild and they kind of revert to something, you know, more mustardy yeah because you can taste it i mean we allow our brassicas to always do a second year sometimes a third year and you know they seem to turn into one each other you know they, they kind of go back to some sort of purple sprouting broccoli at some point yep. and then they very quickly go to seed and and you kind of get the um you know what is harvested as rapeseed um and you know i think in the states gets processed into canola mm-hmm. um kind of you know you get those those big yellow flowers or little yellow flowers but lots of them um, but as you start eating different parts of it, you can, you can taste that mustard. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, with all things like chili and, and mustard and anything that's kind of got that fiery taste, you're going, Hmm, this is going to have some sort of effect on my body. Yep. <laughs> body is going to have to fight in some way. I mean, people who have a hot curry, you know that because you start sweating, um, and you know that you're, you've kind of got processes kicking off, which are inflammatory. Um, but 
you know, the science seems to say that is beneficial. Right. Um, so I think, you know, adding those hormetic stresses back in at some point in our diet, um, when we've got the ability to cope with them, is probably going to be a net yeah. benefit. There's going to be times where actually we just can't cope with those. And I think why, you know, particularly the, you know, things like um, FODMAP, mm-hmm. um, you know, so often is, is overlaid with stress. And if you add more hormetic stresses on a, on a systemically right. stressed, it's not going to cope well. Exactly. Yeah. And AIP does that, right? It's just remove as many stressors as possible to see what's stressing you and see where your baseline. Yeah, I agree 100%. But and then his argument, which I enjoyed was you don't need to do the hormetic stress via food, you can do it through cold plunges and heat shock and there's you know exercise like exercise by itself resistance training is the biggest hormetic stressor that most people will do willingly. And uh-huh. all of those things. But yeah, it's still a right. But do they have additional benefit like there's plenty of things that are near toxic like elderberry do not do elderberry (laughs) one of those things we do too much it is actually poisonous but it has a pretty dramatic effect used as small doses acutely where if you're getting sick or i yeah the arguments around food as a hermetic stressor are going to be very interesting moving forward and it's going to lose a lot of people coming from standard american or just heavily processed diet and they're going to get lost in the weeds of they can't eat anything, which I I was lost in for a little bit. Um, but if I ever yeah, have that happen, elderberry is a fascinating one. So yeah. um, I I I started taking elderberry. Um, I used to have really severe hay fever, um, wow. and elderberry was the most helpful thing um, for my hay fever. And um, I mean, since since going ancestral, primal, whatever you want to call it, um, my hay fever is pretty much zilch. Um, but when it does kick off, um, elderberry is where I go back to. Um, and I wonder if it's because it gives my histamine something to do. Yep. Because um, like they've got to fight something else rather than, oh, we're bored. Let's pollen. Let's, you know, let's fight that. Yeah. Um, instead, it's like, you know, actually we've given a, a system something to fight, um, which ultimately is is mildly poisonous. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that's the conclusion that I came to with, with elderberry. And, and I think, you know, from what you've just said there, that, that, you know, potentially checks out. Okay. Yeah. And all of these are so fascinating because everyone's experience is so individual. Like I knew mm-hmm. someone that could only eat microgreens when I started farming. Um, they just couldn't do anything really. They had such high autoimmune that they couldn't do really any fully developed food, but that didn't make any sense to me because microgreens have the highest antioxidant content, but there's almost no calories. It's just fiber, uh, fiber, micronutrients, and antioxidants. I cannot wrap my head around that one, but she couldn't do every variety, but there was one very mild variety that she could tolerate. It was strange. People's food allergies is very strange to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, when working with clients, it's like, you know, here's a baseline of, yeah. of kind of human evolution and a direction to shoot for, but um, really we're building up your literacy of self-experimentation. Right. Yeah. And that's what I love as the thing people come to is the um, permission to experiment. You don't have to go dig through 10 to 20 years of research because I see people and I used to be like this. You would just need so much research before you're like, is this worth it? And you're like, you will never know. It takes, the science is always 10 years behind. Like I always tell people to personally experiment with something that's not just straight up dumb, but um, that was carnivore for a lot of people. They're just like, well, obviously this is just dumb. You're going to kill yourself. And people are like, nope, turns out you don't need any glucose at all. 
that was what it showed. It was like, you actually don't need any. People are like, no, you do. And you're like, no, you don't. You can literally live off steak and eggs forever or for as long a time as would satisfy your experiment <laughs> because your body's real good at making it. So anyways, yeah. it was just a good proof of concept in my brain where it uh, was, oh, this is possible. That's what I like about the whole nutrition for as many dog dogmatic diet wars get in there it's the whole oh this is possible like people keep breaking through mental barriers and that's why i love paying attention to the research yeah um, i think we we love putting things in in silos don't we but yes we do but we we've not existed and evolved like that we've moved through different terrain you know if the out of africa theory is right and we all came from ethiopia there have only been certain things available there and as we stumbled into new places we would have developed resistance to to certain things which probably the people in ethiopia wouldn't have been exposed to and it would have killed them but over time we got used to them and there'd be other things that we had to stay away from because perhaps our microbiome had you know got the same stuff in the soil that the ethiopians did and you know we're a diverse species and we can we can break through in in, in new and interesting ways all the time and i think we've, we've just got to keep trialing that on ourselves mm -hmm. um, and there's one more thing i wanted to talk to you about because i've been really thinking about doing this and i saw a picture of you with a uh it might have been a certification or maybe like a, a pre-race plaque did you do move nat yeah yeah so um the thing i think you saw was um i just did my my level two certification yes. as a trainer a... um so i did my level one last year and I was, I was aiming to do level one and level two together but i got covid during level one hmm. um so kind of finished level one with a fever um, which was was not pretty. No. Uh, and then, so I returned and did level two this year. And the idea is to do level three next year, um, as well as they do a combatives and an aquatics um, certification, um, which I'm keen to do. Um, so for the people who who don't know, MoveNat is um, is just short shortened version of uh, movement and natural um, from the French movement natural. So natural movement, and essentially it's just moving our bodies in the way that they have evolved to. Um, so we're thinking, you know, crawling, climbing, running, escaping, um, swimming, rolling, um, all of those different moves that our ancestors would have done during the average day of maybe stalking a deer or running away from a saber-toothed tiger. That's always the picture that comes to my mind. Mm -hmm. We always run away from saber-toothed tigers. Yeah, it's the one that was told to us. It's the example everyone uses. And you're like, I wonder how many times this actually happen <laughs> yeah. i think it's just the coolest image isn't it it you know, is yeah um but yeah it's it's learning all of those skills and i guess rewiring them into daily life um and it to my mind it was such a good fit um with ancestral living because um it's it's play it's fun it's skill-based um you know workouts don't feel like a workout they, they feel like good fun um but you're, you know, you're really working your mobility, which was the area that I, you know, really sucked in actually. Yeah, I do too. Uh, yeah. And that's the bit that I've, you know, I've seen so much transformation in, you know, deep squats used to be killer for me now, you know, they're, they're a comfortable position to be in. Um, you know, we floor sit most of the time um, and, and transition from the ground to standing really well. Um, you know, we know the science around that, that, you know, if you're able to do that well when you're 50, you're twice as likely to be alive when you're 60. So, you know, just baking that in early, earlier on in life. Um, and then just the fun skills like climbing and, you know, um, not just sticking to pull-ups, but finding the technique to do things akin to muscle-ups, but also you know, swinging up using your legs, um, waking up your feet, really learning to use those in, in climbing techniques. That's been a lot of fun. 
learning to crawl the science around crawling is brilliant that's something i do with all my workshops when i, I do quite a lot in schools mm. working with teachers and getting them crawling is, is is really fun um kind of breaking them out of their um their, their seriousness and, and getting them back to being a kid again and just you know there's those patterns that we all use when we're a kid when we're you know mucking about out on the streets or in the woods or whatever um just getting adults doing those again but seeing the value of them um and especially juxtaposed to to, to being in a gym yeah and especially using you know things like weight machines with their you know constraining movements and you know we're just working on a muscle belly at a time without really incorporating tendons and ligaments and using the springiness that is inherent there um to move us really really well do you see a balance of any sort between resistance training because muscle-centric movement does have so many metabolic benefits. Um, do you see any pairing of the two, or do you think that natural movement by itself is straining enough where you could probably just do that and be fine if you weren't concerned with hypertrophy or just sculpting yourself? Mm. Yeah, I think actually the the Moodnet methodology is really good in terms of still honoring mm. um, sort of building muscle. And, you know... I, even if you don't have a, a hypertrophy goal, you, you should do. <laughs> the you know the the metabolic benefits of having a decent amount of muscle on you, especially as you age, is you know just so well founded. Um, and the the kind of emphasis section of a workout can can easily still be that. Often it's something like a deadlift. Right. Um, you just might be adding um, some environmental complexity in there. So you might be doing an offset deadlift. Um, you might be you know deadlifting a a log rather than. Um, a barbell and um, there'll be nothing against you know still using a barbell yeah. to, to the raw strength but then reintroducing it into the a natural context so that you can apply it in everyday life and you can you can be strong to be useful or you know be strong to be helpful um one of the things we did on level two which i absolutely loved um was a rescue from a burning building um uh -huh. obviously um and, and within that you you've got a lot of you know you're, you're lifting a dead weight human um and, and one of the guys I was I was partnered with was about 100 kilograms. Um, so, you know, you've got to get them up on your shoulders and, you know, down across different terrain. We were doing it outside, so we weren't using stairs, but we were trying to find, um, you know, ways of honoring that if we were in a burning building, how could you move them across, uh, you know, the, the landscape that you might find inside a burning building, which if you've got fallen things, you know, uh, a log is a good thing to practice on because, you know, that could be a girder that's fallen down or whatever. And... You know, in doing that, you there's a there's a big strength requirement, and if you haven't got a decent level of hypertrophy, there's no way you're going to do it. Right. Um, so yeah, actually, I think if you train the move in that methodology, you're still going to get those benefits, and you can totally spin it towards the area that you want. Um, so for me, for a long time, I, I really did focus on the mobility more than your kind of standard workout because I, I knew that was a deficit. Um, but I, I have pretty much got rid of most of my um big lifts in favor of natural movements that still put a heck load of strain like doing a a low to ground foot hand crawl so um, you know you're just you've got your, your chest like two inches off the floor and you're crawling um i mean the the activation that you're getting in your core your chest your leg is huge um and um you're, you're getting that overload that you would be getting from a bench press but in that diverse movement um mm -hmm. and, and nothing against throwing bench presses in at all or you know throwing a heavy object using a, a sort of chest pressing motion up from the floor um i just find it, it it's a lot more fun um it's a lot more engaging and i think there's probably once you get people over that initial hurdle of oh this is something new um it's much more engaging for a population 
um, mm. to continue it because of that fun and skill acquisition um, element to it. Um, and I think it feels intuitively good. Again, when you can do it outside, you can do it in a natural setting. There are more people there. It's It's got that play element to it. Um, I just love it as a modality for using with clients because they're much more likely to stick it um, than, than their gym routine. That's true. That's probably a point that I often overlook where I still have that. It's taking me so long to get rid of this, the bodybuilding mentality. Cause I, I used to be way skinnier than this. If you can imagine that, like I'm a buck 55, buck 60 wet. And, but I used to be like 120, which is a bad look for a six, two and a half, um, guy, but. Um, I still have the, yeah, but does this build muscle thing? Like I still have that gym bro mentality and it's obnoxious, just always kicking, <laughs> kicking around back there. But as time goes on, it is really about longevity. Like my hips get, even if I, if I travel, my hips are just in screaming pain. So mobility is becoming such a massive factor in any sustainable movement practice. So that's that was primarily my interest is um, if it can be used to satisfy that strength training sort of performance itch that a lot of us still have, but um, also build mobility. And, and I know there's forms of yoga that do that too. Like um, mm. power yoga was recommended to me, but I've never been a big yoga person. And I don't know if it's because it feels slightly forced, but I often like the more natural movement because if I'm just outside, I don't need to set up for it. I really like things I don't need to set up for. I carry resistance bands in my truck all the time and usually like a kettlebell. So if I'm like I'm f homestead sitting for someone right now, so I just bring my resistance bands. I have like three sets of resistance bands. And if I have a banister to tie them around between body weight movement, sprints and resistance bands, like yeah, I can get a pretty good workout. And again, it's not like sitting under active loading at a gym. So it's definitely not the same, but you can get an enormous amount of tension in with body weight and resistance bands paired together. So the move now has always called to me since my body has started screaming at me to uh, focus more on mobility. Like it sounds like it did yours as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, I know it's totally unlocked my my mobility. And what's really interesting just on the strength aspect is um I was uh, I was traveling and I was at a wedding in Arkansas um last week and um the wedding rehearsal um dinner was um next door to a gym that was owned by the same people and I had like an hour to kill. So me and two other guys from the UK popped next door into the gym and uh, and they were like, "Yeah, we'll do some some trap bar deadlifts." Um, and I, I mean, there was like a, a full on monkey bar rack. So I'm like up there playing around, um, but I jumped down and do sets with them. And these are big guys. Um, and, and I was, I was doing the trap bar deadlift, um, you know, just matching them, um, weight for weight, rep for rep, um, much smaller guy, but actually, and, I, and I've, I've not deadlifted. So we've been like massive workout in the garden, um, and retrofitting all our windows and things like I said earlier. So everything's chaos in terms of. <laughs> set up for for lifting weights um you know i kind of look out the window now and there's a plate over here there's a bar over here they've not been used clearly for a while um but i've just been doing movement still mm -hmm. um and actually I, I think i was probably stronger than i ever have been on a on a trap bar deadlift um you know there were i don't know what it was but you know there were a good number of plates on there and i, I felt really good um doing that and really my my deadlift kind of hip hinge um work has really been slam balls logs and stones yeah uh, 
and and a lot of kind of powerful lifts so kind of lifting and allowing the weight to travel um you know beyond my hands up to sort of chest height or something yeah and doing that power work has, has really transferred into the um into just kind of a static deadlift um so i yeah i totally think you can build strength with with moving that totally build hy- hypertrophy and also work in those other benefits mm. if you had to have three things for movement for strength training for the rest of your life what would you pick um definitely a bar that i could hang from and get up onto uh, so having the headroom above it so um that's one thing we have out in the garden is like one of the things when we move without getting the full gym set up outside because yeah. that's easy load of groundwork just very quickly got a scaffold um system up so i had a bar um just i mean even just hanging you know for shoulder health but then wanting to get that good pull motion so definitely one of those um something heavy um that you can move in diverse ways so probably something like a i don't know 40 50 kilogram slam ball um that you know you can throw around um you can get up onto your shoulder you can walk around with you can carry um yeah and then probably a heavy barbell yeah because just going back to that core you know if you can you know you can do all your big compounds with that um and then you know on top of that yeah i've already got my body so right right yeah body weight by itself is usually enough but sometimes it just feels good to lift things for sure body weight just can get boring and you just want to feel that power and it's hard to feel power just with body weight yeah. yeah i had some friends come around um over the weekend and uh one of the guys turned up and he said i just want you to break me he's like really got into training recently um and i was like huh okay um i was trying to kind of pull him back from that mentality a little bit yeah. but said, okay we'll do an intense workout and we had some stumbles and we were doing lots of throwing and catching so um that big explosive concentric action and then the the big eccentric of trying to catch a you know 20 kilogram slam ball trying to slow that down as it comes towards you that's hard work yeah um so, and you, you don't really notice the work you're doing it in a group setting that you know my wife and i and these two guys were doing it together um throwing these balls around our lounge and um and the next day they woke up and they're like yep <laughs> broken <laughs> yeah nervous system and that's i think what people don't realize is it's not always like singular muscles that are going to feel like you might not feel the soreness that you're used to in the gym. You not, might not feel the delayed onset muscle soreness, but your nervous system will feel very taxed. Oh, that's okay. This is my last question. What do you have? Almost everything I've been paying attention to uh, recently is just nervous system focus. So for people who have chronic stress or just have unregulated nervous systems what have you found or what do you use personally to re-regulate your nervous system either acutely like if you need to get yourself down quickly uh because like you know like panic attack kind of stuff just hyper unregulated and bring yourself down quickly and then what do you use on a more um easy daily thing or if you have any at all yeah i'd say the um the answer to both of those is breath work yeah um it's the the easiest, quickest way to get on top of your your nervous system. Um, and it, the brilliant thing about it is you can train it when you don't need it um, to the point that where you do need it, you can access it very easily. 
Um, it's very easy once you've patterned it to slow your breath down, make it diaphragmatic, get a bit of constriction at the back of your throat, activate your vagus nerve. Um, and, and conversely, it's very easy to quickly, you know, do something like, you know, breath of fire or uh-huh. uh, some, some quick, quick forced exhales if you want to pump yourself up in a situation. And it's something that um, my high stress clients, they've found huge breakthroughs with, um, even to the point where they felt hindered in weight loss and without actively changing anything else. And sure, the, they, they will have changed things off the back of the change in their stress levels. But getting on top of their stress levels with their breath work, they found has unlocked things like their weight loss or their sleep hmm. or their digestion. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a longer tail and a cascade there yeah. um, with that. Um, but even just that stress, stress regulation to their mind has been the breakthrough, um, you know, to clients who have felt like they've been doing everything right. Um, but haven't got their stress in check, done some good solid breath work for four weeks. And then they've gone, huh, this is starting to see a change in my weight now, or, you know, my physique right. over there looking at that. Yeah, I mean, I think stress is the the monkey wrench in everything. I mean, even in the curriculum, whenever you're reading about hormones, and you're like, these are all brilliantly, they play off of each other so brilliantly. And then you just throw cortisol in there chronically. And it's like, none of these work. Just disregard everything we just said. <laughs> yeah, uh, stress is just throws everything off. So it, it, modulating it and being able to have it used when it needs to be used is a massive life skill do you have any specific um easy breath work that you do i mean maybe nothing that's um takes a long time but do you do like square breathing box breathing like what do you like yeah exactly those sort of tools so um things like triangle breathing and box breathing is just a good way of slowing the the breath down you know essentially we want to be if we want to bring ourselves into balance we want to be breathing between four and six breaths a minute Hmm. um that can be in for four out for four um not necessarily seconds it's probably two seconds for each of those so that you're mm-hmm. kind of bringing yourself down to that sort of 15 uh 10 to 15 second range um and then if we're wanting to really get into deep relaxation bringing it down to under four breaths per minute um which is what where we might do four eight breathing where box breathing really comes into its own um because it's a little easier if people are comfortable with retentions um i typically don't do retentions until people are comfortable with some of the um some of the more basics like just getting their belly breath working mm-hmm. uh, and and being comfortable breathing through their nose um and then once they've got that down pat then introducing um the the um the retentions um especially retentions on an exhale um because at that point it's like you've got more carbon dioxide coming into the lungs without kind of being diluted by right. oxygen um so um you're just you know it's really good because you're building up that that carbon dioxide tolerance which is is the benefit of slowing the breath work down um because you're you're essentially allowing the bore effect to work better the more carbon dioxide in your system the more the oxygen is releasing to the cells sounds counterintuitive a lot of people think they're playing with oxygen when they're doing breath work they're not they're playing with carbon dioxide right yeah um but when you know when people understand that they go oh, okay um you give them that framework and then they're good to start doing the the retentions but yeah um four four breathing to bring themselves into balance four eight breathing um to bring them into deep relaxation and then just um yeah the forced exhales um to help hype yourself up that's one we use every morning as a family um so in our morning routine um we we do breath of fire which you know just forced exhales sort of 20 rounds of of a very quick breath 
um, to kind of get us ready to, to start the day, which gives us, you know, just an extra little boost of cortisol, but nothing crazy. Right. Yeah. No, it is very intense. And in large groups, when you feel everyone around you doing that <laughs> is way more intense. Like I go to a, a men's breathwork thing and the amount of energy, like you can literally just feel it pulsing. It's kind of scary at some point. If you get like 15 people in synchrony doing breath of fire, weird things start mm-hmm. happening. That's a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, then you could start going in like, you know, down the rabbit hole of quantum consciousness and all that sure. sort of thing. We do. Don't uh, worry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, you Nothing's know, off you, limits. Yeah. 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 You know, that's, that's totally the sort of world that, um, that I can see you um, inhabiting because um like, like we identified when we were when we were training it was like oh alex is just me but on the other side of the pond yep <laughs> yep just different manifestations of different versions of yourself yeah it, it's <laughs> super that doesn't make sense whenever you hear that in like a more spiritual or whenever you're if you're focusing on awarenessness or consciousness whenever you hear that everyone is just a different version of you people are like what does that mean and then you see someone that's literally just a slightly varied version of you you're like that could have been me in another life that's what that mm-hmm. is yeah <laughs> yeah and then you just have to take that to the logical extreme yeah but um oh i do have one more question because our curriculum didn't and i'm kind of surprised now that i've uh fallen down the the vortex of water there's almost nothing about hydration in in our curriculum or in any curriculum i'm curious what sports performance science said about hydration um, and if you use it at all in, in your practices, like as a specific focus of like hydration, like nutrition. Yeah. Um, so nowhere near to the extent that, that, that you do, you know, mm-hmm. it's something I've, I've been listening to the stuff that you put out, um, just cause it is something that is kind of interested me mm-hmm. and something that I'd like to, to kind of go down that rabbit hole at some point. Um, so really in, from the sports science backdrop, it was always very much, um isotonic in terms of salt and also in terms of glucose so you know taking things like gatorade and and, and lucozade that was what was recommended from the the conventional wisdom um for me and what i do with my clients is is really just the salts um so making sure they're getting their, their sodium potassium and magnesium along with their water so that they're, they're better able to hydrate um I, i'd love to to really understand some more around um sort of the hydrogen interaction within mm-hmm. water Mm-hmm. the ionization um i mean for us as a family we'd love to start collecting our own rainwater and processing it um you know that's a it's a little jump from where we're at right now um so our, our water storage should hopefully come onto line probably in the autumn once we've got um, just a bit more external work done mm-hmm. uh, and then from there we can start figuring out exactly what we do with it aside from use in the garden which is yeah. you know the thing and how we retrofit other systems into that so at that point um you know i'd, I'd love to to really um or by that point to have, have have gone down that rabbit hole yeah it's a long one i didn't think it was going to take as long to get down as as it has because it's an old science that has mm. a lot of literature but a lot of the literature is very confused because there's not a lot of great foundation and a lot of there's a lot of mysticism behind water like uh-huh. people are still arguing that there's only three phases yeah it's very interesting like there's clearly a fourth phase i mean it's called structured water there someone almost won a nobel prize for it like but that's not super well known like people will still be like that's conspiracy and you're like you can see it under a mo-. like you can make it it's called easy exclusion zone water i mean it, water's a battery but 
that's the point is it's so new in the literature but there's a lot of data coming out now about structured water people are paying attention to that water a little more because there's an industrial explosion over in the states every week now so there's a river system being contaminated like the massive uh, chemical companies like dupont and all of them um that have been dumping their waste in the water. It is now actually known. So people are paying a little more attention to filtration first, which is the key, right? You need clean mineral water first, and then people get sucked into the world of hydrogen. And then you can tumble down structure and um, all of the spiritual things that come with it because we don't know what water is. It's so weird. Like it's not just H2O, right? You can, I was actually having an argument the other day with people about the water cycle and they're like water is forever and i was like no i can split it on my countertop that's what electrolysis is you're literally splitting water apart it's not that hard and this happens in nature and people were like wait what i thought there were only three phases and they're like no but i get what you're coming from and it's so much more like the disassociation and reassociation of water is such a mind-blowing subject and hydrogen by itself if you want to go real down the rabbit hole alpha vedic has a great podcast on this with uh i think it was george george mm, i'm gonna forget his name is the inventor of um the aqua cure so it's i forgot his last name for it's not foreman uh i usually know this anyway he talked about hydrogen being an octave and the the hosts are very good um Dr. Bear Paul Lando, hydrogen as or elements on the periodic table as we think of them being octaves. So this brings you into the like resonance way of thinking, where it's not just a billiard ball and atom. Like hydrogen has different forms depending on like its atmospheric conditions. That was one of the more esoteric ways of thinking about it. And if you dive into the water world, that's what it feels like. It doesn't feel like you're playing with molecules it feels like you're playing with like base transformational structures it's super weird and the science is now starting to catch up so there'll be a lot of it coming online in the next 10 years and i'm fascinated by by research yeah, I think we I weren't think... taught this that you could just do so much with yeah. water it's such an yeah. easy thing <laughs> yeah i mean it's amazing I, so when i was doing my degree the, the theology side of it is actually where i came across um some interesting okay. research on water because of um, ordered water in the microtubules of the, the yeah. brain kind of essentially um you know having different quantum pro properties and yeah. therefore allowing potential um non-mechanical top-down causation from humans in the world around us and you know when you think about observing a, observing a photon sent down um one end of a, a photoelectric cable and changing the spin on the other photon sent the other way you know you're like huh you know this this makes sense when we start thinking about water there and again that was something that i parked yeah sort of back in my brain and then when i started seeing the things around all the water i'm like ah oh, this is something i've seen before yeah um in kind of relation to, to neuroscience and spirituality and mysticism so yeah i kind of get where you're coming from there on um it, you know the, having a mystical backdrop but now we're starting to see some science come out around it and i think that's always exciting when science starts catching up with something that humans have had some in intuition on for for a good amount of time yeah, there's all these healing waters around the, the world. And the like the thing I usually land on, because people can actually look it up, is there are there were at least seven, I think they're some of them are closed down now, um, or were during COVID, but there were at least seven sites sprinkled around the world. Like Saudi Arabia had one, 
uh, Nord now Germany had one. Lords France is the most popular and well known one, where people would just go on pilgrimages and you know claim to be healed, or they'd have random chronic diseases just disappear. So you know some scientists were like, okay, what's in the water? And there were always holy sites built on top of these, right? And the one common thing they found, and I'm sure this is a multivariate thing, but the one thing that they all agreed on when there were stupid high levels of molecular hydrogen, which is H2, so loose formed hydrogen gas in the water. And we can measure that. And I have like meters that measure that. But so that's the new craze over the past, probably about, it's been around forever. I mean, the, the machine I use, the company has been around 50 years, but a lot of ionizers popping up because people are figuring out, especially in the sports world, that's where most of the the money is being dumped in is molecular hydrogen as like a recovery agent because it's the smallest molecule we know of and it's a gas. There's no digestion or assimilation, no metabolism necessary. It ticks your antioxidant systems and it's also directly combative to free radicals. So it's kind of the easiest thing you can do instead of having to think about where else your antioxidants are coming from, resveratrol or curcumin or all of the other ones. You only get a couple times, right? When you're eating. Yeah, you drink water all day. So it's kind of just like supercharging your your recovery all day. And I'm very interested to see what happens whenever the sports world starts doing real tracking. It's already exists, but maybe there's maybe 300 total studies on it. And a lot of them are um, not as scientifically rigorous as we would want. They're there on um, neuroprotectiveness, DNA um, repair and protectiveness, um, pH blood balancing. It's all, sprinkled all over the place, but I'm waiting for like large studies to be done on this for like thousands of people. Right now, they're probably on like maybe a hundred or so just because studies are expensive to fund. But yeah, it's a fascinating area of research. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's totally something I'd love to, to get you on at some point and, yeah. and talk to my community about is, is hydration because it's, it's something that you've gone down the rabbit hole uh-huh. on. And- um, you know, um, you know, a heck load more than me. So at some point, um, we'll get you on there That'd be to, awesome. to them about kind of op- optimal strategies for, for hydrating. And it's very interesting as well when you're playing with low carb, which wasn't mm-hmm. talked about at all. Like you're just blowing through water a little more. If you're depleting glycogen, you're just flushing a lot of water and electrolytes. So yeah, it's, it's kind of critical in that, that specific world when you're not just pounding carbs all the time, you're just going through a lot of water. Um, in closing, before I find another tangent, because I could talk to you about everything <laughs> all day, uh, where can people find you and give us one, anything that, that we didn't touch on that you feel is critical importance and give, give, um, like the biggest thing that you think people can do to make, um, largest changes for all day energy. The one big thing. Yeah. Um, so they can find me, at whole life health dot UK. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Coach Jake Mahal, and uh, and between those two things, um, you can spiral out into the places I am as well. I think the one thing we didn't touch on, which is a huge one, is just really um, guarding and valuing our relationships. Mm. Uh, as humans, um, the thing that stresses us out more than anything and causes more disruption than anything is our inability to relate well to one another when things um, go awry. Um, you know, being able to say. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. You were right. Um, the ability to to build bridges and to believe that there's enough in the world for both you and for me to have an abundance mindset, not need to grab onto things. I think 
that just causes all sorts of craziness on a personal individual level right up to national scale um, and if we can view that there is enough out there and we can share the resources we can share our wealth we can be generous and we build that positive upwards by um, cycle of generosity and we don't all stress each other out in the same way and you know we, we benefit um, at a core human level as well as a societal level Wow. Yeah. Perfect. Perfectly said. I don't know how we missed that, but I'm glad you brought that up. And yeah, that is huge. That's kind of the core fabric of civilization, I would say, actually. Yeah. Just relationships and of mental health for sure. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's really good to speak with you. It's good to reconnect and uh, we should do this more. Yeah, man. I like it. Thank you.